Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Down backroom politics. Love and hope radio. It does that every time. Today on backroom politics, special guest, former Secretary of Transportation, former Congressman Ray LaHood joins the backroom politics team as we talk about everything regarding budget talks and government shutdowns and everything. Oh, my. Hey, by the way, Senator Ted Cruz tried filibustering, and he ran into objections. Is he really the new face of the new Republican Party, or is this just an anomaly? We're going to be talking about the latest updates on the president up at the U.N. We're going to be talking about things going on, the tragic shootings in Nairobi. That's Ann Tommy's story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. There we go. We're back on the air. There we go. And joining me to my 12 o'clock, he is the former Secretary of Transportation, former congressman from Illinois, Republican, and longtime Washington insider and a good friend of the show now. He is the honorable former Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, you, Justin. Glad to be here. We are so excited to have you here. You know, this is an honor. You know, we, 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 we always... Love having uh, you know figures such as yourself here on Backroom Politics. This is a way for us to get the non-political, unsanitized version of Washington out to the public, out to the people, and we're so glad you were able to join us. Uh, I, I just want to start in, in focusing on you for a second, if I could, Mr. Secretary. Um, you know, when we look when you look back at your career, and you just finished up as the Secretary of Transportation as a Republican for the Democratic administration under President Obama. When you look back at it, did you feel that there was some sort of inequity or some sort of party tension between serving as a cabinet secretary in a Democratic administration and only one of two Republicans in the cabinet itself? Or was it just we're part of the team? Well, I certainly felt a part of the team. And I also felt uh, because of my long-standing friendship with the president, which goes back to our days when we served in the Illinois delegation, he as a U.S. senator and me as a 
U.S. congressman, uh, we developed a, a very strong friendship over that two-year period, worked very closely together on issues for Illinois. And then when I joined the cabinet, uh, I felt very warmly welcome and uh, felt like um, we were a part of a team of people that uh, really our, our number one goal, at least for the first couple of years, was to get the economy going. And DOT played a big, big part in that. We got $48 billion out of the economic stimulus program, created 65,000 jobs with 15,000 projects. So I think we made a huge contribution to uh, the effort to get the economy moving and put people to work. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Well, let's talk a little bit about stimulus, if we can, Mr. Secretary. You know, it, it, there was a lot of criticism as far as these shovel-ready programs were coming out, um, but we always got the impression that when when we talked about, when we heard out of you and out of your uh, department, these shovel-ready programs ready to go, that created jobs, that these weren't just some flights of fancy. You guys put some serious thought into what, in fact, was shovel-ready and ready for government funding. Is that accurate? It is accurate. We, we were able to get $48 billion spent in two years. $28 billion on roads and bridges, $8 billion on transit, $8 billion in helping the president inaugurate high-speed rail, $1 billion for airports around the country. And the reason we were able to do it is because of our great partnerships uh, with governors, with state DOTs, with airports, with transit districts, great relationships developed over a long period of time so that we knew and they knew what projects needed to be funded, when they needed to be funded, and then we, we provided the funding. Uh, and the, the real thrill of this was seeing people go to work, seeing roads uh, being repaid, seeing bridges being fixed, seeing runways being fixed, and no bad stories. Two years, $48 billion, not a bad story about any money being misspent, but again, it goes to the point of our partnerships that we've had over a long period of time at DOT. How, how important were the industry relationships in setting forth those projects? You know, we, we see a lot of, whether it's the American Trucking Association, whether it's the rail groups, or even AOPA in the aviation side, did they play an influential role in helping you come up? What were the right programs? The groups that played a very influential role were the contractors. Contractors all over the country that were ready, willing, and able to get these contracts from the state or get a contract from an airport or get a contract from a tra transit district, spend the money properly, put people to work. Contractors were ready uh, because there was a pent-up demand for these dollars and a pent-up demand for really putting people to work and getting these projects going. So the, so the idea that the stimulus didn't work, it worked when it came to DOT. It worked in terms of $48 billion. It worked in terms of jump-starting uh, the transportation and infrastructure economy. Now, you're talking about the $48 billion that you spent that were directly into these shovel-ready programs. Any indication as to what the ripple effect of that $48 billion was? Well, as I said, we created 65,000 jobs, 15,000 projects. A lot of runways were repaved. A lot of roads were resurfaced. A lot of bridges were fixed. 50-year-old uh, transit districts around the country benefited from the $8 billion. Uh, and uh, we, we just felt like we did it the right way and couldn't have done it without our partners. When, 
When we look at the transportation infrastructure, there are many people, both on the Hill and across the country, that are saying that, you know, although we made a good step forward with some of the shovel-ready programs that we have, we still have a antiquated, almost failing transportation infrastructure. Do you agree with that assessment? I agree with that, Justin. Uh, America is one big pothole. We, we are way, way behind. We used to be number one in infrastructure. We used to be number one in our ability to fund big projects. We can't do that any longer. People are afraid to vote for an increase in the gas tax. The resources aren't there, so we're being outcompeted uh, by China, which is building 85 new airports this year. They're building new roads, new bridges uh, all over Europe. Uh, they, they're, they're, everybody is doing more than than we're doing in America. What, what do we, you mean? And when the Congress did pass a transportation bill, rather than a six-year big, bold bill, they passed a two-year bill. First time in the history that was done because they weren't willing to come up with the money to do something bold. But how, how, do, we, uh, how do we here in Washington market the idea of, look, we've got to spend money to help improve this antiquated infrastructure that quite literally the American economy and the American public depend on. Where's the well, it's going to take that? the people to convince their representatives that they're going to have to make some tough votes to put together a big, bold plan and also to fund it. The gas tax hasn't been raised since 93. When it was raised in 93, half of it went for deficit reduction and the other half went for infrastructure. The key is not only raising the gas tax but indexing it. And if you index it, then over a period of time, you begin to keep up with inflation. Well, we've heard the idea, and we've talked about this idea several times on the show and previous shows that we've done talking about transportation infrastructure. One of the questions that keeps coming up is, instead of relying on the gas tax, instead of relying on raising taxes, the idea of an infrastructure bank might be feasible. Is that feasible? Of course it is, and uh, Congress hadn't been willing to go along with it. Why not? Uh, they they think it takes away their, their prerogative to uh, to have something to say about the funding. But let let me tell you what the Congress did do. They really increased the TIFI loan program. This is like an infrastructure bank. They increased it to two billion dollars over the two year period. And what it means is you can come to DOT with a bridge project, or you can come to DOT with a big road project. We give you a loan, and you leverage millions, billions of other private and public dollars in order to build the bridge, uh, in order to build a bridge like what they're trying to do out in Al's state uh, that he once represented, the, the Columbia River Crossing, right. a big bridge project where they're using the TIFIA loan program. To a smaller extent, people have used the TIGER program. Right. This is the program that... People can come directly to DOT and actually get a grant for up to $20 million. So there's been a couple of little fixes, but we need a big, bold plan. And to your point about just using the gas tax, we have the TIFIA loan program, we have the TIGER program. We need to allow for the use of tolling, allow for the use of vehicle miles traveled. Everything should be on the table, not just one pot of money but several options for people to choose from. But it seems that the Republicans on the Hill, your former party, still seems to be reluctant 
to talk about that because that seems like it's going to cost the taxpayers more money. Is that true? In places, well, it's true that politicians in Washington are afraid to talk about the revenue <laughs> or raising the revenue. Yeah, that part's true. But in places like in California or a few other states where they've gone to the people and said, raise the sales tax one penny, and in California you have to get 60% of the vote to do that, they almost always do it because they know the money's going to fix a pothole in front of their house or fix a bridge that's falling down or fix a transit system. When people know the money is going to be spent to help uh, with infrastructure, infrastructure, they almost always do but, you know, it. We, we, I, I go back to a state I'm very familiar with, Florida, sure. and I look at the, you know, the transportation trust right. funds that they had in Florida, which you're familiar with. A lot of that money that was to go to infrastructure improvements, particularly in the roads, were being used to supplement funding for building jails in Gadsden County, for building new buildings in other parts of the state. They weren't focused on roads. Does DOT have any play in that, or should they have a play in how they use these transportation trust funds? Well, the, the governors and the state DOTs have jurisdiction over what projects get funded, now, sometimes they use federal money. Sometimes they use their own gas tax money and match it with the federal money. But there's a good collaboration. But governors and state DOTs do have some say in what roads, bridges, and other infrastructure gets built, of course. Okay. Bob Hines? Uh, Mr. Secretary, I, I think what I hear you saying is the way to raise the kind of money we need to improve our infrastructure is not just a say let's go raise taxes, but let's use a series of programs that are attached to transportation. That's exactly right. And Bob. people will be more happy to you can't pay, rely their, pay, on, those, pay those bills. Exactly. But, we cannot rely on just one pot of money. We use the gas taxes. We use the trust fund to build the interstate. I'm not saying it's antiquated, but that fund needs to be replenished, and we need to think about other opportunities, like the Tiffy Loan Program, like the Tiger Program, like VMTs, like tolling, so that it's not just one pot you're always relying on. It's several streams of revenue to, to really get us back to being number one. Denise Kraft. Just on the maritime side, you've got two additional pots. You've got the harbor maintenance tax, which everybody's been using but for harbor maintenance, so I would say let's start focusing on that. And then the other part is on the shipbuilding. As you know, my background is maritime, and it's the Title 11 program. It's a billion-dollar program. We need to be using that money to build ships. Oh, I was going to bring that up. Mr. Secretary, you know, for years, the maritime industry has been talking about the Title 11 program. The, the, the maritime blue highway is continuously looked at as a increasingly important piece of our infrastructure, but not so much your department, but the administration's including your Republican predecessors, have been reluctant to fund the Title 11 shipbuilding program. Why is that? Why is there a reluctance to create the shipbuilding jobs, to create uh, American-built Jones Act ships using that fund and that guarantee? I think you're going to see a shift, um, and that shift is going to come when Congress passes in the House um, a very good word of bill that's been put together by the Transportation Committee. puts a lot of emphasis on our waterways, puts a lot of emphasis on the maritime industry, and makes a shift so that the harbor maintenance fee can be used for what it was intended, to get ports open, to dredge ports, to get deeper ports so that 
when the Panama Canal opens, ports all over the country can take advantage of all of the new capacity that's going to be created at the Panama Canal. Will, will it include the infrastructure at the ports level? Because right now, the only two ports that could possibly take the super-duper Panamax ships and the increased capacity of the Panama Canal are L.A., Long Beach, and possibly New York. And even New York's got a dredge to get some of the bigger ships under the Verrazano Narrows. Will that include creating the infrastructure and the ports being allowed to build on that money what, what, the, what the ports need are the resources from the harbor maintenance fee to dredge in order to get deeper ports and also to increase their capacity to receive more cargo. The worded bill changes the direction. Right now, the harbor maintenance fee is being used for deficit reduction. It should be used, it should be going into these ports to give them the kind of capacity they need and also uh, their ability to dredge to get deeper ports. If this bill passes, that will happen. What about, now, looking at the maritime side, similar concerns have been talked about in the aviation side. Uh, the ability for airports, more regional airports, to increase their capacities, to modernize their facilities, to get more passenger traffic in. Uh, and even some of the general aviation uh, airports, your larger ones, are starting to take some of that overflow and coming into their infrastructure. Quite frankly, they're saying they don't have the infrastructure to handle a lot of that overflow. Taking out the FAA, just the infrastructure side, would the WERDA bill assuage some of those concerns? WERDA is primarily dealing with our waterways. It is. Okay. It is, yeah. Our rivers, uh, as you call it, uh, what we call the marine highway, right. using the waterways, uh, increasing capacity at the ports, changing the direction of the harbor maintenance fee so that it really can be used to increase capacity at ports. But let me just say a word about our airports. The Congress did pass a four-year FAA bill. Most of the emphasis in that bill is getting the airports to next-generation technology, right. to getting to state-of-the-art technology. That has been implemented in several airports around the country. Uh, because of sequestration, which is a terrible, terrible idea, Nobody would do budgeting by sequestration uh, except the federal government. It's a lousy idea. It's hurt the ability of the FAA to really implement NextGen the way that they want to do it. But given these opportunities, at some point, every airport in the country will have the best technology to guide planes safely, to save jet fuel, to guide planes uh, in a more direct route in and out of airports. And it also helps the airlines get the technology in the airplanes. That has been slowed down, though, by sequestration. How, how, how far? Because I know that the FAA, when they were talking about NextGen, the first the first round of NextGen was already supposed to be starting to be implemented. It is starting to year. be implemented, but it's slowed way down. How far behind is NextGen? Uh, well, like everything else in the government, uh, sequestration has made huge, huge meat axe cuts. Uh, in every budget so that people are being laid off, programs are being cut, and it's inhibiting the FAA from really moving ahead the way they want. As, as a secretary and as a former member of Congress, you obviously had the ability to talk in their language up on the Hill uh, with your former colleagues. Was that helpful in dealing with Congress and trying one to of the, get... One of the best advantages I had in this job is having served in the House 17 years as a staffer and 14 years as a member. I knew all of the members. I was able to call them and talk to them. I was able to relate to them. I was able to help them with their infrastructure needs. 
it was a huge advantage that I had over every other uh, cabinet member who had not had the advantage of serving as a staffer and uh, as a member. Did did that connectivity help at least, or did you at least try to convince your former colleagues that, look, we cannot maintain our current infrastructure the way it is by sequestration? How hard was getting that argument? Yeah, well, look, at, look at, they know that. They know that. Then why would they, then why because, is sequestration? Because the issue of 40 members of the House who believe they were elected to come to Washington and do nothing and stop everything has inhibited the Congress from making any progress. No appropriation bills passed. No budget passed. No immigration bill passed. No tax reform passed. Stopped by 40 members, Republican members of the House, who believe they were elected to do nothing and to stop everything. How hard was it to actually run national transportation programs without a budget. You haven't seen a you didn't see a budget the entire time you were secretary. Well you? they did pass a two year bill and we we began to implement that bill called MAP twenty one. They did pass a four year FAA bill and that helped us with next gen. The problem that really occurred is when sequestration clicked in uh, starting January first. Again a meat axe approach, an approach that nobody using any logic would use to do budgeting and really inhibited every agency of government from uh, doing what they want to do. When, when, when people look back as your term as a congressman, uh, what do you feel was your greatest legacy as a congressman representing the folks down in Southern Illinois? Oh well, look at uh, first of all, uh, as Al knows uh, because he served, uh, you vote on you vote on the big issues, the tough issues. Uh, you think you can make a difference doing that. You try and make a difference in your own district. And uh, and then just, you know, being a part of uh, a Congress that, uh, you know, really took on the big issues. I, I was in Congress when 9-11 occurred. I was at the Capitol when those planes uh, uh, crashed into uh, two buildings in New York, one building here, and, and, and the crash in Pennsylvania, and 3,000 of our citizens were, were killed. Uh, so... What you do, you make a difference in many different ways, in your own district, in the way that you vote here, in, in your ability to, to do big things and to solve big problems. That doesn't exist today. When Al was there and when I was there, even though there were disagreements, in the end, we did big things. We solved big problems. We came together because we were willing to compromise, talk to one another, work together. That's what America's always been about until right up to the last two years. America's always been about doing big things, solving big problems, always by compromise. No one of the 535 in the Congress gets their own way. We only get big things done. We only solve big problems. We only make a difference when we work together. Well, Bob Hines, I'll let you go first now. I sure wish that that last statement would be written down and mailed to every member of the House and Senate. Well, we can get the transcripts, Bob. That's easy. <laughs> Boy, that is exactly what well, needs to be Well, chime in here, Al. You know what yeah. I'm saying. Well, I think it should be tattooed on their foreheads. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, they wouldn't be able to see it. How about a... Well, put it backwards so when they shave. How about it on, everybody, on everybody's back so you can see everybody else's? <laughs> yes. That's exactly what comes from Al. I think that he has put it so well that, that, that it's hard to say anything except repeat 
what uh, what the, the secretary said. <clears throat> the short-sightedness, I think, is also in part because over the years, public works got it got a maybe a maybe it's fair, maybe it wasn't, but for being kind of a pork barrel thing. And uh, somebody once said uh, a pork barrel project is, is, a, is a good project in somebody else's district. Uh, and I, I think that also being able to get more people to understand what the secretary said about how the, the money was spent and not wasted and not building bridges to nowhere and that kind of thing would help the public's attitude towards spending money considerably. And I don't think that message got out to the degree that it would have been. Well, let me ask, for every 20 miles of highway rebuild or something or put a bridge together, there's always a bridge to nowhere, and everybody remembers that. Right. But they don't remember all the good things that get done. But I want to ask the Secretary on that point exactly, Bob and Al, is when you talk about these large transportation infrastructure programs, like, for example, in New York, the rebuilding of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Right. Critical. Which is in for a tiffy alone. Exactly. But when you're in Nebraska and you see the Tappan Zee Bridge, that screams pork. When they hear the bridge to nowhere, that is the poster child for pork. How do you convince, as Secretary of Transportation, the American General Electorate, that no, 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 that Tappan Zee Bridge project could affect how much you pay for something at Home Depot or Ikea? Well, look, part, part of being in, in a position in government, whether you're a member of Congress and you have to go back home and explain to people why you voted the way that you did. You go back home and explain to people, this is what this issue was about. And do it in, take more than 30 seconds to do it. Take more than three minutes to do it. And try and explain both sides. And as a member of the cabinet, my job was not only to take our cues from the president and what his agenda was, but to explain it and to explain in detail why these programs exist, why we're spending the money we are, how it's being spent, and why it's a good use of taxpayer dollars. And that's part of our job as uh, either elected or appointed officials. I think one of the things that made that more difficult was the big hoorah about uh, uh, earmarks. <clears throat> I, I can remember an interchange uh, in, in my district uh, where Essentially, it was a 24-hour-a-day parking lot outside of one little town because it needed it needed a new interchange. Uh, I don't. I never heard the word earmark in the 16 years I was in Congress. And for that project, I had to go to before the Appropriations Committee and explain it. And the first year, I didn't get it. The second year, I brought in the. Uh, Secretary of Transportation from the state, who laid out very well the, the, the reason the state needed that particular project, and we brought a lot of facts and figures to justify it, and it passed. Now, that would have, a few years later, been called an earmark, but it, it, was, it was justified and justifiable, and uh, that part never made the news. You know, it was again yeah. some some odd little thing they picked out somewhere that some idiot congressman stuffed in somewhere along the line. <laughs> but, 
they didn't have, uh, and, and that that one or two or three examples of earmarks screwed the whole thing. Well, I want to let that be the last word. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with former Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. If you have a question for the Secretary or anybody around the table, you can call in toll-free, 877-662-3713. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's back room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us again is our special guest, former Transportation Secretary, former Republican Congressman from Illinois, Ray LaHood. Uh, Mr. Secretary, um, Alan had a question first, and we'll go into the next series. Yeah, well, I was reflecting on this this uh, enthusiasm for saying, wow, if we could just get it together like we used to and make the big decisions together and darn, there's 40 guys in the House uh, uh, who are controlling things. We can argue about the numbers. There's no, no argument that there's a, there's a group that has huge significance. But it's not just an accident that, that this has occurred. Ever since 2007, and when the economy went into the tank, and we watched unemployment get up to 10%, and still haven't seen it recover. Um, when we started deficit spending to the tune of $1.4 trillion a year, about 40% of what we were spending, and in the midst of all of that, watching as 
as there was still this mutual back-scratching going on in the Congress of a little money for you, little money for you, little money for you, those earmarks and set-asides became exaggerated. They were all a small piece of the total, but they were something that helped grease the process. But every single one of those things happening to this economy in 2007 and 2008 infuriated the public, and it frightened the public. And although the public doesn't want to do necessarily a lot of homework, they know when things are bad and they look at the Congress and they say, a pox on everybody up there, Republicans and Democrats alike, deficit spending explodes regardless of what, what uh, party is in power. And a new breed of people started getting elected, feeding on that anger. And we're still struggling with that. And we're still struggling with huge deficits with a with a with a uh, total unwillingness we talk about the need to get together and I we talk about this all the time and there's a great need but not to work on the CR not to get us through another 10 weeks or do or do a debt limit or 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 modify slightly the sequester the challenge now is to find a way to take on the truly big stuff the entitlement programs that no one wants to tackle. The reason we sort of stumbled into the sequester, the reason we haven't changed the sequester is because in some ways it's easier to struggle with it than to do the stuff that we need to do and nobody, including the president, is really talking about in a big way. And that continues to be the thing that that there is no great stomach for taking on. But I but we can't forget how much the American people are angry at everybody and it did generate election of, of some people who were elected basically to, to to change everything, to say no and say no again and well, again. It, it does, but Mr. Secretary, it, it, it does bring up a good question when we talk about fighting the sequestration, we then look at prioritization of the funds. How is it, how do we in fact prioritize what are the important funds, at least in the transportation infrastructure, that we have to put together? Is it the bridges, which a bridge report just came out last week, giving us basically a failing grade in our bridge infrastructure, or do we increase our passenger rail capacity, or one better than that, how do we prioritize the actual infrastructure versus securing the infrastructure. Prioritization has got to be a part of what you're trying to do uh, as secretary when you were as secretary of transportation. Well, prioritization is important. And uh, we, when we were at the department for four and a half years, we, we, we do it every day uh, because we have to allocate funds to certain areas. Our country is about roads and bridges first. It's about rail. It's about transit, and uh, and so we, you know, we make those priorities. Sequestration really leaves us uh, with with not many options, and uh, that's been a real problem for every agency of government, not the least of which is defense, homeland security, um, and then uh, all the other agencies. Denise Crap. My concern right now is maritime. Quite frankly, it's maritime, maritime, maritime. Because if we are going to rebuild our economy, we're going to have to start exporting goods to balance out what we import. The exports, in my opinion, should not only be going on vessels that are foreign flagged and foreign crewed, but should also be going on some U.S. owned, U.S. crewed, U.S. owned vessels. 
We need to start building ships. We need to start crewing them. And we also need to start scrapping them here in the United States. I mean, Maritime was the reason we became the superpower we did 200 years ago, and we're losing that. So when we start talking about rail, we start talking about roads, you have to bring Maritime into that picture. Yeah, I no, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. But when we when we talk about going back, and I want to get back to Maritime because that's important to me as well, but I, I know that Congressman Al uh, has been a big advocate for rail infrastructure, particularly the passenger rail. Why has high-speed rail or the investment in solid passenger rail not taking ground here in America the way it should be? Well, it really has, Justin. Uh, during the last four and a half years, this administration has uh, allocated a little over $12 billion. That's 12 billion times more has ever been spent on passenger rail, over $4 billion in California, over $3 billion in Illinois, over $4 billion in uh, on the Northeast Corridor. We are making huge, huge investments. There are a lot of private co companies here from uh, Europe and Asia looking to make investments in California. Uh, Japan made a huge investment in Illinois in a, in a uh, passenger rail car facility. So the investments have begun. Is it enough? Of course not. But we're in a very tough, but, a but, tough but, fiscal time right we, now. When we look at, you know, aviation is already overtaxed. I think we would agree on that. It, it's, it's at capacity or close. One of the great ways that we've seen in other countries, particularly in Europe and Asia, where we haven't taken taken hold of, is the aspect of high-speed rail. What is the hindrance of Americans to get on board, for lack of a better term, high-speed rail rather than relying on the aviation? Again, again, the way that we've implemented high-speed rail is through our partnerships with Amtrak on the Northeast Corridor, with governors on the Northeast Corridor, with governors in the Midwest, and with the governor of California. These are the people that implement high-speed rail. These are the people that set up the high-speed rail authorities. These are the people that allocate state funds to match the federal funds that then can be used with the, the private dollars. Congressman Al? I've always been bothered by the fact that we use the term high-speed rail to really talk about two different things. They're very, very different in terms of cost, in terms of time, and so forth. And that is uh, high-speed rail usually conjures up in everybody's mind the bullet train, 300 miles an hour, and incredibly huge expenditures. I think we should do some of that. I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. But also, when we call it high-speed rail, I think we should start calling it intercity rail. It, by increasing the speed of existing passenger rail in, in areas where it's three to 500 miles long, which is just a, a, a really rather small increase in the speed limits that the rail, that the rail uh, Federal Railway Administration permits, you can uh, begin moving people uh, off of airplanes, which increases capacity of, of the airports, which is a lot cheaper than building new airports. Uh, and uh, it has a number of other advantages, but we, we, because we use the term high-speed rail to mean either or both, it can, tends to confuse people, and it particularly says this is going to cost one a hell of a lot of money. 
where if you start talking inner city rail, you're talking about a lot less money. And I would argue you get bigger bang for your buck in the, in the long run. So you know, yeah, yeah, that <coughs> Al's point is a very good point. And um, in California, they'll have trains going 200 miles an hour from San Francisco to San Diego. It'll take 10 years to build it. It'll be all new infrastructure. In Illinois, they're going to get trains to go from 75 miles an hour to 110 miles per hour. On the Northeast Corridor, they're going to get trains going from 79 miles per hour to a little over 100 miles per hour. And in some instances, maybe 110, 130. Very good point. We should be talking about passenger rail, inner city rail, the connectivity, but we need to make sure people understand there are huge investments that have been made. Not near enough, but it's a very good start. One of the areas that they talked about, uh, Secretary, for example, Amtrak, they talked about privatizing Amtrak from for years. Is that the right option, or is Amtrak... Not the right option. Why not? Uh, because you need the leadership of the national government to promote passenger rail. And that's the way, that's why Europe has the best rail system in the world. That's why Japan has the best rail system in the world. That's why China has the best rail system in the world. Each one of these areas of the world has good passenger rail because the national government has made the investment. But when, look, but when you look at example, British Rail, British Rail just privatized. You had uh, Virgin Rail most, take over a most, good chunk of Most of the rail in the world was started, implemented, and uh, is being run uh, by the national government. Some of it is being privatized because all national governments are fa being, facing huge, huge uh, uh, financial problems. There are two ways of, of privatizing. <clears throat> if in, in many countries, the government provides the infrastructure. It builds the rails, it maintains the rails, and all of that stuff and then they invite private people in to run the, the, the railroads on them. That is one way you can do it. But another problem that gets overlooked, I, I was astonished sitting down with some staff for Senator McCain once, <coughs> who wanted to privatize. And I said, well, <coughs> unfortunately, or fortunately as the case may be, when Amtrak was set up, it was given the exclusive right for passenger rail to use commercial transportation rails. And if you if you suddenly privatize the whole thing, they don't have access to all of those rails. And so, bingo, you really raise the costs enormously and it's just not practical without going back and, uh, and changing some fundamental laws. Yeah, one of the things that we did do when we, when we started this adventure four and a half years ago, is we did sit down with the freight rails. We have the best freight rail system in the world, and we signed agreements with the four Class One freight rails to use their tracks during off-peak hours, so to speak. Uh, and and so now we and it took us a while because the freight rails take great pride in the priority that they place on the use of their tracks. But we have put in place agreements with all four Class One freights. Uh, in order to use their tracks during off-peak hours in order that passenger rail can really take off in America. And I can guarantee you that wasn't easy. It was very difficult. Because uh, I worked for uh, Burlington Northern sure. for a brief time, 
and you get down and start talking with the operation level people, and they don't want anything on their tracks. Right. They don't want a, a bird to land on them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so overcoming that prejudice uh, it was a tough job. Alan Moore. Yeah, it, it's a very tough sell to in a, in a time of uh, massive budget deficits and scarcity, whether it's federal government or most of the state governments, to say, we want to take on a whole new deal. California just fascinates me. I'm a native of California, and everybody I know in California, including family members who still there, who are still there, think that this the high-speed rail system from San Francisco to L.A. and on down to San Diego won't happen. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but people out there say it won't, and if it does, they won't use it. Or they think it'll be unbelievably expensive to use. I mean, we can subsidize stuff, but somebody has to pay. You, we, write, we, we, we have a nice metro system, a subway system here in Washington, D.C., and a ride costs, say, two bucks uh, for the individual, and it's probably a $3.50 ride. So what a sweet deal. Um, thank you, taxpayers uh, writ large. Um, if, if, if governments are willing to subsidize a di a particular types of transportation, well, then we can do it. But there are these laws of arithmetic. We, we, we talk about Europe, uh, Germany, France, you pick a country, and look at, at population densities and geography and, and highway systems, and you, and you start realizing, oh, okay, they've built their infrastructure and their country, and cities are not that far apart, it's, it's, it's goes back to their history. But, but we're a much bigger country with pockets of, of uh, high population density, like the Northeast Corridor. And California, where, and, which well, has 35 million people, by the way. Well, <laughs> oh, a fact. It was a fact. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, that's pretty high density. Yeah, well, <laughs> But where, but how many stops between uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles are going to make any sense in that 35 million? I mean, it's it. it I hope I'm wrong, and that all my California friends are are wrong about this 200 mile per hour train. It sounds great. I've been in Japan on their trains. I mean, you don't you don't you don't get out of uh, suburbs in Japan. Everything is is high density. Um, and and uh, I'm just a skeptic about whether that can work on any normal rules or laws of economics. Congressman Al? And what I found out is that there is a general negative attitude toward passenger rail on, uh, for all the arguments that you raised. They're not all accurate. <clears throat> for example, between Seattle and Portland, 11% of the capacity of SeaTac Airport flies to Portland. You can get to Portland by car almost as fast as you can as you can fly. And if you just increase the speed a little bit, uh, rail will beat the airplane city center to city center. Uh, so and and here's here's the real key. Washington State, which uh, along with Oregon and British Columbia, have, have helped make that uh, Amtrak run uh, in the Pacific Northwest succeed. And Washington State promoted the hell out of it. 
they they bought billboards, they bought ads, they bought television spots. They sold that, and you can't during the summer get a seat on that train. <laughs> you know, so people are using it and love it, but you. You all in the rest of the country, aside from the Northwest Corridor, Northeast Corridor, you really don't have uh, a demonstration that it will work. There are places where it is working, and I hardly hear anybody ever talk about the system in the Pacific Northwest, which is uh, just superb. Denise Crump. But my problem has always been, if you're going to subsidize high-speed rail, and California is a monthly state, um, and so, is, you know, the Northeast Corridor is, is a very lovely area as well. Then we, again, we need to start talking about the maritime industry. And I, re and I talk about maritime industry because you can move a lot of stuff. Don't roll your eyes. Just Fast boats. Come on. Fast boats. And I want to talk about environment. Because if we're, we're going to start talking about this, and you, we do need to talk about it for the environmental reasons, because the fact that you've got low emissions, that we can come out on this. And we need to start talking about how much we are subsidizing, because we have to talk about priorities over the next couple of years, and what are we willing to spend our money on, and what are we willing to cut it? Because we're going to have to make those cuts. Well, I want to go, I want to go back to passenger rail for a second, though. You know, we, we looked at what happened in Florida. Florida had a constitutional amendment saying that they were going to have high-speed rail. Go, going back to what uh, Alan was saying, they rescinded that constitutional amendment based on the argument that we're hearing in, in uh, California. There's no need to have a high-speed rail stop in Deland, Florida, when your major city centers are Tampa, Orlando, Miami, and Jacksonville. But again, you talk to the people in Deland, they're going to say, yeah, I do want that because of the fact I can get to Miami cheaper than the $400 round-trip ticket takes me and the time it takes me to drive to either Daytona or Orlando to get to Miami. We also hear uh, Secretary LaHood about people in Nebraska. Uh, in, in I was just out in Missouri recently. People in Missouri looking for rail, passenger rail traffic to get between St. Louis and Kansas City. How do you balance that argument of saying, well, again, this costs money. How do we invest that? Is that a prioritization? It, it is a priority, and uh, there is a plan at DOT that we developed to um, include passenger rail um, to 80% of the country over the next 25 years. Missouri would be included in that. They, there would be connectivity from St. Louis across the state to Kansas and then on west, connectivity from North Carolina to Georgia on down to uh, to Florida. So. There is a plan in place. There is a big vision for this. Uh, it's being done incrementally, but eventually uh, there'll be connectivity all over the country. Carl Tuvin. Yeah, one of the things, especially in California, California has lost a lot of people to different states. And I'm sure, I'm almost positive that the high-speed rail that would be good for tourists in California to go to the different cities. And also, as people go to California and see these high-speed rails, they might want to consider moving back to California. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if the same thing is, is it's on the... It's taxes that are tax-killing California. On the East Coast, but you know, at least for California, that, I think, would be a plus. Yeah. Well, Secretary Lund, in the last part of your tenure as Secretary of Transportation, you took on a big initiative. 
in the no texting while driving. Uh, it was widely embraced by both the telecom industry, uh, the automotive industry, as well as it was a big priority with the administration. What what was the catalyst that said this has got to be a transportation priority? This was a part of our whole safety agenda. Uh, we developed a safety agenda in every mode of transportation, whether it's the airlines, trucking. trucking. Uh, we took a lot of bad buses, a lot of mechanically uh, deficient buses, a lot of buses that were being driven by people who were not uh, properly licensed. We took some trucks off the road. We uh, we tried to help the airline industry with some additional safety measures. But distracted driving was an issue that we felt, first of all, nobody was talking about four and a half years ago. Only 18 states had passed laws. When we left office on July 1 of this year, uh, 41 states had passed laws. We need a national law. I would have pushed for that had I stayed in the job. But it takes three things. In order to get 86% of us to buckle up, which is what is happening today, it took 20 years of three things. Click it or ticket, which was a good uh, public service message, good laws, and good enforcement. Uh, you have to have good enforcement and good laws, and people take personal responsibility. And as a result of 20 years of good laws, good enforcement, and people taking personal responsibility, 86% of us buckle up. So we're just at the starting gate on distracted driving. Some good laws have been passed. Police have a lot of things to do on the street. It's difficult for them to write tickets for people that are on their cell phones. But if you drive down the streets of Washington, everybody has a cell phone up to their ear. A lot of people are texting and driving. It's very dangerous. And so uh, I believe the new secretary will keep the drumbeat going as far as this as a safety program. The same thing could be said of drunk drivers. 20 years ago, uh, people were not paying attention to that. But thanks to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, good laws, good enforcement, and people taking personal responsibility, we've taken a lot of drunk drivers off the road. Congressman Al, real quick. I just have a suggestion to throw out to anybody who is listening. <clears throat> if you could get a message out to children about this, we don't have junk along our highways. And I think it's primarily children who picked up on that one when Daddy threw his cigarette out the window. Daddy, don't do that. Uh, and you catch hell from your six-year-old. Uh, it really has more effect sometimes than getting a ticket from a, from a cop. Uh, I, I, I don't think that will work with some things. Uh, drunken well, with dri distracted drunken driving, driving, it would. But with no. distracted yeah. driving, if you could, if you could get all the kids in America to start riding their parents on that, yep. I think you have uh, over time. You can uh, make a difference. A big difference. Daddy, don't text. Mommy, don't text. Campaign. That's not a bad idea. Secretary, yeah. uh, one one thing on maritime that's come up uh, over the past few years, particularly in this administration, is the Jones Act. The issue of the Jones Act. Uh, Jones Act waivers have been issued by this administration at a level that we have not seen in a long time. Uh, and the Jones Act does create jobs and transportation. It keeps a lot of our merchant uh, merchant mariners employed. Uh, it's, it's close to me being former Coast Guard, former Merchant Marine. My nephews just graduated from the uh, State Academy at New York. So when we look at Jones Act, how important is Jones Act 
to uh, the transportation department? And is that something that we can revitalize instead of tear apart? You might want to define Jones Act. Jones, yeah, let me, let me do that. Jones Act, it, Jones Act is the uh, is the law that says that there is no interstate commerce. A foreign flagship cannot go from Baltimore to New York in commerce with foreign licensed nationals. It's got to be on a American built ship with American crew uh, in order to do interstate commerce. So, how important is Jones Act from a security standpoint and from an economic standpoint? Well, it's it's very important, and uh, it's it's a law that was put in place so that uh, Americans could be employed, that American companies could be used, and uh, in some instances there were occasions when we had to you know provide the waivers. But uh, I would say that uh, the Jones Act is is important to this administration, important to the Department of Transportation, uh, and. Um, you know, waivers should be given very sparingly. But it, but it, but it, it seems like there's a new push, particularly for the cruise lines, to take back a little bit of the Jones Act. Are they making any headway in that, or is Jones Act secure? Jones Act is very secure. Jones Act is uh, is a good law, and uh, it's a good uh, way to uh, maintain the, the, the level of, um, of using American companies and um, and, and continue to uh, to make sure that our people are working. And there are labor organizations for whom it is the only issue. Yeah, yeah, major. that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the mad on it. Absolutely. Um, well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the budget crisis going on. Secretary Hook, can you stay for another segment? I'll stay for another segment. Great. Excellent. Yeah. We're going to get into the meat of this. This is going to be interesting. We're going to talk about budget concerns, government shutdowns, and, by the way, Ted Cruz is on the floor of the Senate filibustering. Quote out of CNN, I am going to talk until I can't stand no more. It's going to be a gunfight, kids. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. By the way, it's time for happy hour. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Happy hour. On Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
now you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Uh, joining me for the second hour is Congressman Al, Bob Hines, uh, Denise Kreb, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, and our special guest, kind enough to join us for our next segment, uh, Former Secretary of Transportation, Ray LaHood. Thank you again for joining us. Thank Secretary. you, Hey, uh, let's talk about the budget crisis for a second. So, here's the deal. Right now, Ted Cruz is filibustering on the Senate floor, thinking that this is going to have some sort of success in getting the House bill, which was passed last week, uh, which defunded Obamacare, but gave us a little bit of a temporary reprieve of a government shutdown. The GOP is uh, standing firm in the eyes of Ted Cruz. However, we've seen several in, uh, in the uh, GOP, including... Uh, in, including the minority leader and Senator Cornyn, talking about, hey, look, we got to back down from this. Number one, the big concern on everybody's mind right now is, in fact, the government shutdown. Alan Moore, when we hear the term government shutdown, it's almost like a weapon of mass destruction. Are we going to see a government shutdown, even with the talks of maybe a deal, not a deal? You know, I don't think so. And we won't know until we get there. I don't believe that we'll have a government shutdown. It's going to depend on whether the House, at the, at the presumably at the end of the weekend, by Sunday or Monday, says shut it down or cut a deal that, that's going to make a bunch of his people unhappy. And I'm guessing it'll be the latter. 
Um, let me just make one little technical correction uh, on the comment that Ted Cruz is currently filibustering. Uh, he's not filibustering. What are he's, you doing? He's talking. <laughs> he is talking as long as he wants until tomorrow when an already filed uh, petition called a, a, a cloture petition and a cloture vote pops up automatically. It doesn't matter if somebody's talking. And we have a vote. And then we officially go on to this bill that came over from the House that would simply continue current spending for 10 weeks. You got that, folks? 10 weeks? Um, that's it. That's what we're talking yep, about. 10 weeks. 10 weeks, temporary spending. Don't make any changes. What uh, what the House did do under pressure from some of its own people and outside pressure from or uh, encouragement uh, from people like Ted Cruz is they added something that would that would continue everything except for money that would help implement the Obamacare bill. So it's got a few things in there that it doesn't have money for. Everything else, leave it alone. It's not going to pass. The Senate would never go along with it. The president would never sign it. They think that they could win the battle of public opinion if the government gets closed down because of this particular issue. Um, and I, and I think that that's correct. I think that's what will happen. But even though though people may call what Cruz is doing a filibuster, he may say himself, I'm filibustering, I'm going to talk till I can't stand anymore, fine. It's irrelevant because the vote is already scheduled for tomorrow. A filibuster means that that you don't have everything planned out. You stand up and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And only then can you figure out what to do. They've already figured out what to do. The first vote is tomorrow, and he can talk all day or he can talk for for five minutes. It makes no difference either way. Secretary LaHood, it, it, it seems like, and I, I, I'm a Republican. I'm a moderate Republican, a practical Republican. But it seems like, you know, we've seen the 40 people that you talked about earlier, or how many number that is, kind of holding the party hostage of doing the deals that when you and Al were in the House used to get done, whether over a drink or just sitting in somebody's office or heck, even going on a CODEL. What is the catalyst that's saying what, or that's allowing these guys to almost literally define Speaker, or defy Speaker Boehner and saying, we got to move on? Well, they're gaming the system. There's, uh, there's enough of them that they can game the system to the point uh, that uh, the leadership on the Republican side, the leadership of Congress is going to have to make a decision that if they want to get through this uh, debt crisis, uh, get through the CR, and then in the middle of October get through the debt limit, uh, they're going to probably have to reach across the aisle the way that uh, Newt did in order to get three balanced budgets and the w way that Newt and Clinton worked out welfare reform and the way that Newt and, and Clinton, you know, uh, took care of uh, some tax reform using all of the members, not just a select few members. Boehner was elected Speaker of the House, the whole House, not just the Republican Party. And it's his responsibility in order to get through a CR to keep the government open and to get past the debt limit in the middle of October to allow the whole House to, to work its will on this. If he does that, 
uh, we'll get through this. Carl Tuvin. Well, first of all, I'm glad that the House put the uh, Obama amendment on, in, in their bill. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sorry to hear that Ted Cruz is going to stop talking tomorrow. I wish he would talk for a few more days. Uh, I think that the Republicans have been hurt already by this. And the more that they, they stall and the more that they, they go on and on and on, the better it's going to be for Democrats. And they, I don't know if they realize it or not, they're digging a grave for themselves. And Congressman Al. And I would like to ask Alan a question. Yeah. Going back to what he said before, not that you're close to the to the right wing up there, but the Republicans have, have shut the government down twice. And it backfired on them twice. What do they see is different now that they're going to have this tremendous political victory? I don't find a lot of Republicans who are leaders or even in the middle of the party saying, let's shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. There's a handful who say shut it down. Most Republicans aren't going to shut it down. But what they are being careful of is how they vote and how they get painted because the risk for Republicans is not the opprobrium of the public, if you will, or the media. The fear in many of these safe Republican districts, gerrymandered districts, is the threat of a primary challenger who comes in from the right. It's, they've, 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 they've seen enough people who are conservative, but perhaps not pure enough of a conservative for the, for some folks with a voice and with access to money. So, it, and you see it happening right now, there are senators who are up this year who are worried about getting uh, an opponent from within their party and from the right, and many House members worry about the same thing. So, on an individual basis, there's a lot of folks who are worried about that, but I don't hear any, any mainstream practical leaders. Republicans you know, and I'm not talking about moderate. I'm talking about conservative people, um, the Tom Coburns of the world. Nobody thinks that 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 for a minute that he's a some kind of a soft conservative. But he says we cannot shut down the government. This is the mentality of of the overwhelming majority of Republicans. That doesn't mean that they can't have a House vote. They can't have a Senate vote. They can lose on this particular issue of defunding Obamacare. There's a, an enormous amount of, of fear and dislike about the details of Obamacare, but you can't defund it now. You're not going to shut government down over it. it that would be stupid. So, 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 so it gets back to what Bob and I bitch about all the time, and that is the nature of redistricting. Redistricting is is a, That's is part a of the key ingredient in all of this. Jimmy's crap. It is. Here's the question, and this is for the, the folks out that are listening to us. What's the process? I, I, I mean, I'm sitting here with several gentlemen here who were involved in the process. And when I'm talking about process for those that are listening, there are certain rules of, you know, in order to get to the floor, you have to go through certain committees and you have to have a certain amount of time. Uh, can you talk for a few minutes about process so that people will understand what has to happen in order for this actually to be signed by midnight on September 30th? I mean, I'm looking at Bob because, well, you kind of advised a couple of folks. Yeah, well, um, the House has passed a bill. Right. 
and it funds the government for a period of time. I think it's 10, 12 weeks. 10 weeks. And uh, it's it's got the we don't fund Obamacare. Right. The Senate will on Thursday probably uh, vote to take up that bill, report it out, pass it without the House language with respect to Obamacare. And they will then send it back to the House probably on Saturday. And that's getting pretty close to the Monday deadline. The House will then probably take the bill, and I think what they will do, they will take the clean bill without the Obamacare, and they will, they will put that aside, and they will, they will do some other things. They will say, okay, uh, we're going to have a continuing resolution for a certain number of weeks. We are going to uh, authorize the, uh, the uh, pipeline. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to put a couple things in that, you know, the conservatives like, and they'll vote, and then they'll send that back to the Senate. Talking Saturday night or Sunday? Yeah, Saturday night or Sunday, and then on, sometime on Monday, something will happen. Well, yeah, yeah they, won't, they won't go to conference directly from the two bills. Now, Alan Moore. Yeah, just one thing. Um, remember, the, the, the so-called CR, continuing resolution, is, an, is a spending bill. It's an appropriations bill. It, it authorizes the U.S. government to spend money on certain kinds of things. So... Any change they make can only deal with the spending piece. Right. The, the Bob made a reference to the Excel pipeline. pipeline. I think that's going to be part of the debt limit debate, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, when we have to <clears throat> increase the debt limit in order to allow ourselves to continue to deficit spend going into the future. But the, the real question for the House is, assuming the Senate does what we think it will do sometime between now and Sunday, and, and how many days it takes will depend in part on what people like Ted Cruz decide to do after tomorrow. He's, he's talking today. It's more relevant to talk after tomorrow, which he can also do, but he might be a little tired by then. Um, and others may pick up uh, and, and just decide they're going to talk, talk, talk. But, again, there will be a scheduled vote that will shut off right. the, 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 uh, the debate on the continuing resolution. The House then has to decide, do we take it clean the way that comes back from the Senate, assuming that's how it comes back, or do we make some other little change? Do we do some spending thing related to either Obamacare, much narrower than the bigger one, or and, and force the Senate to come back next you know, next Monday and work it out. That's what remains to be seen. And that's why there's a little bit of uncertainty about whether the, the government actually gets shut down, so to speak, for a day or two or three. But Secretary LaHood, being a former Republican member of Congress, does this infuriate you that, that literally this is now the third or fourth time that defunding Obamacare has come up on the floor? It's failed each time. The Senate's never passed a bill that has talked about uh, defunding Obamacare. This seems just more like political kabuki dancing than rather getting stuff done. Is this frustrating any of the folks that you're talking to on the Hill, possibly? Well, I think that um, the people that are scratching their heads are the American people. Uh, they don't really understand um, this uh, game that's being played 
given the fact that the House has voted more than 40 times to defund Obamacare and haven't been able to get it done, I think people are wondering, why don't we get on to passing appropriation bills, passing a budget, passing tax reform, passing immigration reform, doing things that really affect the American people? And uh, I think people are scratching their head over it, and uh, it... Uh, you know, it, it, it's going to play out in a way that uh, is not going to be favorable uh, to the Republican Party. Denise Crabb? Mr. Secretary, you've been through this bill, unfortunately, a couple of times. Can, can you describe to folks the amount of work it takes to actually figure out who is non-essential and who is not going to report to work on Tuesday and who is essential and, and, and just the time and the effort that's involved in that process? Well, it, 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 it just takes time away from uh, the work that needs to be done at these departments. It takes time away from people who have other important jobs to do uh, to, to really trying to identify. Look, at every, every employee of every department is essential. And when you try and designate somebody as non-essential, uh, that, that, that becomes a very, very difficult situation particularly when you're talking about the Defense Department or the Department of Transportation, which deals in safety. Um, and um, it's, uh, it, it, it's the kind of work that uh, is uh, least appealing to anyone, and, uh, and uh, it's just uh, it, it, it's very difficult to do. But Bob Hines, you know, we've had several key Republicans that haven't come out yet saying the democratic things that we're hearing, i.e., this is going to be a detrimental hit to our economy growth, this is going to be a detrimental hit to our credit rating if we don't go through and pass debt ceiling. All in all, it seems that this is a lose-lose for the GOP, but common sense and leadership isn't coming out of the GOP. Where do we have to dig to find some of that leadership? Well, it's... There are Republican senators who have been saying right along, this is foolish, and they particularly mention the senator from Texas. Uh, Mr. McCain is not shy about saying that. Uh, uh, Richard Burr of North Carolina, who's a pretty sensible guy, has said the same thing. And a number of people in the House are just livid about the whole thing, from what I can tell. It's, you know, you've got a situation where Mr. Cruz can talk and Till, as, as Alan says, tomorrow, because tomorrow he just he has to stop. He's going to have to, he's going to be shut off. But, but the reality is, later on in the week, you'll be able to debate again. I mean, you can't stop that stuff. But, Alan Moore, I mean, we've even seen people like Rand Paul back away from Ted Cruz saying, whoa, 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 this is a little yeah. too crazy. Is, is, are we going to see more of that happening in the Senate particularly? Well, on this particular issue, Cruz does not have a big following. In the Senate, uh, it's hard. I don't. I don't know what kind of uh, following he has in the House. People were very comfortable, I think, voting for the bill that the continuing resolution that did get reported that would defund Obamacare. They didn't have a problem with that. The question is, what next? And what 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 Ted Cruz and others are saying is, look, we don't want this just to be a meaningless exercise, have a symbolic vote, and then nothing happened. We need to throw ourselves in front of this and do every last thing possible and to, to make this happen. And, uh, and he thinks that what he's doing, uh, well, who knows what he thinks, whether he thinks that this is a possible pathway to that. I think he's too smart a person for that. So I have to 
which which tells me that he's got another agenda here. This is a, an agenda for his own elevation with certain people in the country, of whom there are maybe 20%, I don't know, who feel passionately angry about everything that uh, this president's doing, about what this government is doing, about what Obamacare does, even though they don't understand it. Um, and and uh, so there's, a, there's definitely a constituency that he is speaking to, one that frightens a lot of other Republicans. So at the same time, most of the people have been around a while, look at that, reflect on it, say, I don't think that helps us, I'm not going to do that. But Secretary LaHood, when we, when we hear this, when we hear that there are some practical Republicans, i.e. even people like Tom Coburn, who is largely a Senate conservative hardliner, uh, but when we hear the uh, Senate conservative fund, who blasted both Senator Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn as being turncoats, do you see them? Do you see them, McConnell and Cornyn and others like John McCain, uh, surrendering to Obama and not moving forward the truly conservative agenda? Oh, I think people that are against shutting down the government uh, believe it's a bad idea because politically it's a bad idea. The last time uh, that Republicans did that, I was a member of the House, and. Um, Following that vote, and after the following general election, Republicans lost control of the House because uh, the American people felt they were too extreme. This is a political calculation. This is a political decision made by the leaders that shutting down the government does not appeal to the American people. They don't want their national parks closed. They want to continue to receive their benefit checks. They want to continue to, to get their... Uh, government services. They don't want to see offices closed. They want to see government services continue. And uh, this is a political calculation on the part of people who know that it will hurt whatever party does it. But Tea Party Express, Senate Conservative Fund, coming out and saying that you surrendered to the will of President Obama and the Democrats in the Senate, telling that to the minority leader, that's a, that's a big step. How do they defend that? Uh, they defended by saying we need some reasonableness here. Uh, if we want to continue to be the majority party, uh, we, we, we better keep the government running. The Carl thing, Tubin. The only thing that Ted Cruz has achieved is to put the spotlight on the Republicans in the House. And the Republicans in the House are mad as the devil at Ted Cruz because he went to them and got them to do this, and then he couldn't get Republicans in the Senate. So I don't know, there might be 20%, Alan, who love Ted Cruz and what he's doing, but there are an awful lot of people in the Republican Party that don't. Bob Hines. Well, if there's well, hold on, Bob the Hines. The side of 20% is 80%. Yeah, yeah. true. Bob Hines. Well, you know, the club, the club for growth is behind a lot of this. In, in, so they're really pushing very hard. He, they and uh, the Heritage Foundation with uh, the former senator from South Carolina. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, if, the, uh, if they have their way, the, the Republicans' growth will be growth down. Because right now, I think the public is going to get angry about this. I recall the, uh, the, the previous uh, closings of the government back in the middle 90s. I remember what happened. The uh, Bob Dole, who was uh, doing rather well early on, suddenly, uh, and, and the president is not doing well, having too many girlfriends and things like that. Mr. <laughs> and uh, 
Laden, the Republicans shut the government down, and the president was a hero because he was against that. I mean, you know, and he won the election in a landslide, and we, we lost control of the House and the Senate. And, uh, you know, we went, we went belly up a little bit, and these folks who are doing this, who are doing this now, uh, these Tea Party folks, I love them all. I love their principles. I don't love the idea that they refuse to negotiate anything except my way or the highway. They're wrong. They're bad legislators. They're not worth the powder to blow them up. Denise Kraft. But that's working on the assumption that people know what the U.S. government is and understand what the U.S. government does. I, I mean, I, I teach a lot of students, um, and, and I give a lot of lectures, and when I ask folks, who's the U.S. government, they say, well, it's the U.S. government. They say, well, which agency? Well, it's the U.S. government. We have a lot of folks out here in the United States that do not truly understand what the U.S. government does and how it impacts them on a daily basis. So, that, you know, that's part of the reason you have the rise of the Tea Party because, the, you know, you say, I say no, then everybody's like, well, that's great. You're saying no to the establishment, but they don't really realize when I say no to the establishment, when I say no and I say I'm going to shut down the government, how is that going to impact me personally? And, and I think there's, there's a huge disconnect that we have to, we have to bridge. Well, I mean, but when we look historically also, Secretary Lodd, you, you served in a time where we were just coming off of the Tip O'Neill years as uh, Speaker. You were there with the solid relationship between uh, uh, Speaker Gingrich and the White House and President Clinton. That sort of dialogue is now vilified. Uh, you, I know, were vilified for being a Republican and serving in a Democratic in Democratic administration, as was Secretary Gates. Is, has this become so venomous that compromise is out of reach now? Or is there is there a key point where compromise is going to come back to Congress and we go back to the old days? Well, I think that's deals. what we're going to find out here in the next uh, few days, whether uh, people are willing to set aside uh, the idea that shutting down the government is a bad idea and, uh, and come to grips with the idea that the government needs to function, uh, that people uh, need the services of the government, uh, and that uh, a handful of people uh, cannot have their way on this. Is this a lack of leadership or political courage? Well, we're going to find out. That's what, that's what this next week is all about. Alan Moore? Yeah, and I'll remind everybody that, that you know, that's what I, I totally agree that it's what the next week is all about. This is... This continuing resolution authorizes spending for 10 weeks, 70 days. This isn't That's the a whole playoff season in the this, Major League Baseball. This, this isn't the whole next fiscal year that starts October 1st. We have to do it by October 1st because the federal fiscal year that we're currently operating in of 2013 ends September 30th. It ends next Monday. Then we have to to appropriate additional money to keep government going. This isn't the next year's solution. This is a temporary solution. 70 days from next Monday, we'll be back at this same thing in some way, shape, or form. By then, we will have had to sort out something on the debt limit. I still think there's a decent chance that they'll pull these two things together so that we're not every other month or every other week working on this emergency of the of spending or this emergency of the debt limit. It's a, it's a mess, but we'll get through the next few days, the next week, and then we'll be right back at it and back at it but again. Congressman Al, I mean, we're looking at American electorate right now that's basically punch drunk from all this talk of 
continuing resolutions, budget fights, uh, debt ceiling debates. Uh, Congress doesn't seem to hear that. Why? I have asked myself that question <clears throat> for a long time because I don't think it's going to be just the Republicans that will pay for this. I agree. Because I think the public will be confused as to who really caused the problem. And I think there are a lot of Democratic incumbents who should be worried as well uh, about the upcoming election. Uh, therefore, I think that if, they, if in both parties, and, and it really kind of centers on, on the poor beleaguered speaker, but to, to have the guts to do what is the right thing and will ultimately be seen, ultimately be seen, that could be after the next election, by the public as the right thing. Uh, if, if you don't do anything, it's not going to be very long before everybody decides that's the wrong thing, and, uh, and we're, we're back to throw the rascal, all the rascals out. And I've been through two of those in my election. The last one, we lost the Speaker of the House. Carl Tuman? That will depend on how how this comes out, number one, and number two, how it is framed in 2014, and whether the president is going to get up and talk about this until he's blue in the face and, and make the American people understand what's been going on for the last four years. Alan Moore. Yeah, you, you were asking whether the, the public is punch drunk. I wish the public were punch drunk. We're punch drunk around here. We pay attention to this. We talk about this. Most of the public is not paying attention to this. They will pay attention, though, as Denise points out and, and others, if we stop government, most of government, and have to decide who's essential and who isn't and shut down government services, even for a day or a few days or a week. That's when people will pay attention. Right now, they're just saying, that's that U.S. government. I don't even know who they are and what they do, but they, I don't like them. I don't like any of them, as Al says. And, uh, but, but they don't seem to be doing a lot of harm. The, the harm becomes visible when you stop doing things, and that's when the public will, will be heard from. Right now, most of the American public, in my mind and my view, isn't paying much attention, doesn't care. I think that the best news for Democrats and for the president in a long time is the appointment of the Secretary of Explanations, bringing Bill, <laughs> Bill Clinton, Clinton back into the back fray, in, uh, who, can, who can explain the most amazingly complex things in a way that people understand. Yeah, but, but Secretary LaHood, it, it, it seems like we, we can see Bill Clinton, a former president, all the time. We saw a little bit of messaging coming out of the White House with Jack Lew's statement last week of there is no debate on this. We're going to raise the the debt ceiling limit, and they took a pretty hardcore stance on this. But we're not seeing a lot of the true messaging that we would expect from the White House in this current budget debate. Is that a fault of the White House and the president, or is the president taking a calculated risk? Well, look, the president's a little bit busy here the last few days. Uh, he's been a little bit busy with Syria and a little bit busy with a few other foreign policy matters. But uh, I think when the president comes back from the U.N. tomorrow, which he will, right. uh, he'll convene a meeting of the leaders uh, of the Congress, and they will discuss uh, what the next few days will hold. Uh, and in that room, you'll have every person 
to a person who wants to keep the government open and every person to a person who will be of one mind about how to keep the government open. And uh, I think will that meeting include somebody like a Ted Cruz? That, that meeting will include the leaders, the elected yeah. leaders of the Congress. <laughs> there will be no Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, we got to ask the question. We got to ask the question. The other thing that's there's some interesting stuff on the sides here. We've got we've got uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House. We've got Harry Reid in the Senate using very aggressive and provocative language to talk about what the Republicans are doing, not what these this handful of people is doing. It making me think. That 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 if there is this part of some Democrats that hope against hope that this lingers on and we do shut down for a few days, then the public will pay attention and then they will do their job to 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 uh, to yell and scream. So from their standpoint, either we we get through this and no huge harm done, a lot of annoying, then we do it again and again and again. But if we should shut down. I think most of us around this table agree it hurts Republicans more than Democrats. Denise Krupp? I, I disagree. I, I think I'm going to agree with Congressman uh, Congress Allen here. The majority of the folks won't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. All they're going to care about is they're not getting their Social Security checks. They're not getting certain government benefits they want. They're going to say, screw it. I want all of them out. So I think it hurts Democrats just as much as it hurts Republicans. This happens. Bob Hines. I'm just reminded of what happened in 95-96. It hurt the Republicans. It hurt them bad. Yep. Real bad. You, you, oh, absolutely. I was there it. and I watched it. You were there. It was, it was a real I mean, disaster. I mean, Secretary LaHood, you being there during the shutdown in 95-96, this is a ticking time bomb for the Republicans. We're playing with a live grenade right now. At some point, Republican leadership's got to go, everybody just take a breath. Move on. Let's look at the other important That's stuff. That's why the leaders have said that they uh, don't want a government shutdown. Yeah. Very good. Carl Tubin? They say they don't want a government shutdown. And, and Rice Priebus, the chairman of the Republican Party, said about 10 days ago, uh, we don't want to shut the government down. And then they do the Obama uh, amendment, which could shut the government down. And then Boehner comes out and says, if we have to shut it down, we'll shut it down. I mean, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. But Rice doesn't control Boehner. Rice doesn't control Ted Cruz. Well, also, Rice has made another prediction what, uh, he, to a Hispanic group where he said immigration will be passed this year. Interesting point. Uh, I don't believe for a minute your point. that Boehner wants to shut the government down. No. He really doesn't. And I'm, I think at the end he will do everything possible not to have that happen. Right. It's, it's to his own benefit. It may cause some trouble inside, but eventually some of those people are, are, are beginning to, they're going to have to realize they're destroying them. They're destroying the Republican Party. Well, we're going we're to keep an eye on the Ted Cruz impersonation of Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington over the next 48 hours. Uh, somehow, I don't think it will be as Capra-esque as many would like to think, but that's just reality. We'll keep an eye on that. We've blown through the last... Uh, the last segment. We're going to go continue on without the breaks. Justin, can I scoot out again? Yeah, absolutely. We're, actually, we'll take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened in uh, Nairobi. We're going to talk about a little bit about Iran's new uh, warm embrace of America. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. 
You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Secretary of Transportation, former Congressman Ray LaHood, for joining us for three segments. That was a 
That was a treat, guys. Congressman Al, go ahead. I notice when we, when we are introduced each day, it's former, 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 <laughs> former, former. Now, people might be wondering about that. What former means is we can speak our mind. We're not tied to what we used to do. Right. And uh, so getting formers is usually the best way to get to uh, honest opinions. Yeah. Once in a while, we'd like to get a current, but... <laughs> Yeah, a current liar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we're not, by the way, for those of you listening on the Hill, we're not accusing you of anything, but formers are always the best radio. All I'm saying is this is not a bunch of has-beens who are sitting around here. Talk to yourself. Oh. Well, there's that, too. Yeah. I don't know what well, you're you talking about. never were. Well, yeah. Oh! oh. 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 Well, you know, that, that was, you know, that was painful. Yeah, well, that that eventually painful. a former becomes a never was. Wow. <laughs> right, right. Wow, my credibility is sticking in those times. It's going to be, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Screw that noise. I'm so old. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, real quickly, a um, couple, couple of uh, overseas things. One, uh, want to talk real quickly. Uh, Alan, you got a quick story about is the uh, tragic events that happened over the weekend in Nairobi, Kenya, at the Westgate Mall, in a very affluent section of Nairobi, where uh, uh, 62 people lost their lives in a uh, in a terrorist attack on an affluent mall in that city, of Nairobi. Uh, it, it it was uh, it was attributed to a group called Al Al Shabaab, which is a Al Qaeda related. Uh, Muslim extremist group based out of Somalia, uh, and there are now there are now reports coming out of Nairobi that uh, say that there were Americans involved in the shooting. The, the reports are going back between two, three, five, but there are Americans that were involved in the shooting, according to several news sources. But Alan, you, you were just in that mall two years yeah, ago. Yeah, I I, uh, I was in Nairobi uh, doing some uh, refugee-related work, which I which I do some, and and uh, happened to have a have a free night. I'd heard there was a new shopping mall. I thought, wait a minute, in Nairobi, a shopping mall? It just it doesn't really fit. I mean, Nairobi is a is an active, interesting city with some new buildings and a lot of old stuff, a lot of dirt roads and paved roads and potholes and and a shopping mall. How this is just didn't seem to fit. So I thought I'll go over there and have a look. And I wandered around, and it was sort of the size of Boston here, or maybe Georgetown Park. Not as nice as the the Georgetown Park, just in terms of size. About 70, 80 stores, some restaurants, a little casino in there, a, sh- a supermarket is, happens to be in there. Um, just kind of an, it seemed a little out of place, but a, an attraction to people who have enough money to go buy, uh, buy food in a, in, a, in, a, in a store. And apparently it's become a gathering place on weekends. These guys came in on a Saturday, midday. There was a big children's fair on the roof going on. Um, a couple, several thousand people in the mall, and they just started shooting. And fortunately, the the death toll is was not a lot higher. Horrible, horrible, horrible as it is to to lose around sixty some people and and, a, and another hundred and fifty. What they're doing is they're terrorizing. This is go after har, uh, soft soft targets. soft targets and go after wealthy foreigners and expats who can afford to be in a place like this. Frighten them so they won't 
come, come out of their homes. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's not unlike the 9/11 might said it, in, in the Twin it, Towers. It, it's interesting because there there are there are several reports, including out of the BBC, uh, that that uh, are reporting that the terrorists actually went in there about an hour or two hours beforehand, started identifying Muslims and escorting them out of the building before the actual attack happened. I mean, Alan Ward, somebody that's been there, Nairobi is not associated with Muslim extremists, but for those critics who say that we got Osama, Muslim extremism is dead, this is a wake-up call. Listen, the Muslim extremism is alive. It is, we, we may have cut off the head, uh, or a couple of the heads, and we've now got all of it's metastasized and all of these smaller groups in Yemen and Somalia, in Iraq, in Iran, in Syria, in Libya, in Egypt. Um, it, it, is, it is a growing monster. These small regional groups believe in terrorizing, believe in wanton killing. Uh, suicide is part of the arsenal. Uh, it is very, very frightening because we, we, we don't, you can't even negotiate. You don't even, wouldn't even know who to talk to. Right. It's just uh, they, they feed on generating fear. Yeah, uh, Denise Kraft. And I say that if this is Al-Shabaab, these are nasty, nasty folks. These are folks that kidnapped a lot of mariners. And you've heard me talk about a lot of uh, maritime issues today. But hundreds of people are still held captive by these folks because of the way in which they were transiting around the Horn of Africa. I mean, they started out getting a heck of a lot of money via piracy. So if they're now moving into shopping malls, that's a problem. I mean, these guys are not nice. Uh, Carl Tuvin? Well, the, and the thing is, is that uh, Detroit has a big Somalia um, population, and they've been recruiting from here. They've been recruiting from uh, people from Iran, people all over the Mideast. These folks, and of course, as we point out, it's not only here. This week, you've had two or three different explosions in in, our, in Pakistan and Iraq and some other places. So, unfortunately, the president said, you know, uh, we, we've beaten Al Qaeda back, and now we find out that we haven't beaten Al Qaeda back, and they're still a force. And they're still making trouble. Yeah, it, it's a tragic, tragic situation there in Nairobi. And obviously, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to those who are affected. Uh, the other big news story coming out of New York today uh, the president is up in New York for the UN General Assembly. He addressed the General Assembly around 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, nothing really huge. The big news is coming out of Tehran, where the, the new president uh, of Iran. Has basically said that we are we need to embrace warmer relations with the U.S. Uh, this is a big shift in policy coming out of Tehran. Uh, Alan Moore, this is this has got to be helpful as far as our Middle East credibility goes. Listen, we we <laughs> we we can always be hopeful. You know, Americans are always optimistic. I I, I was thinking about the old phrase trust but verify, and I'm thinking. No, 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 you can't trust the Syrians, you can't trust the Iranians, but we've got to be skeptical, but then verify if we can cut a deal with them, and then hope that it works. But we are eternally optimistic, and, and this, this new leader, it may make a difference. We're just going to have to watch and be but careful remind. every step of the way. I, I want to say one thing about the president's speech, which I listened to. I thought it was a terrific 
speech. Yeah, I, I, I agree. thought I agree. He, he was addressing the world and t- and bringing them up to date on America, who we are, who we aren't, what we care about, what we don't care about, how we don't want to just impose ourselves everywhere. We're trying to get out of things, but sometimes we see that it is in our interest and the world's interest to intervene in one way or the other, and that's what makes us exceptional. Ramani, use that phrase again. I thought he did. I thought he gave a great but, speech. But Romani is is obviously looked at as a reformer inside Iran. I mean, he's the right person to make the attempt. But going back to your comment about the president's speech, I too watched the speech today. You know, normally we expect some sort of saber rattling coming from an American president dealing with sensitive uh, issues, i.e., Syria. Wasn't a lot of that today. There was, a, you know, some references to saying, you know what, we're aware of this. We're going to monitor it. If you use it, there will be retaliation. But there was not a lot of saber rattling coming out of Obama. No, he basically was just trying to further explain why we care so much, and and that that in fact, if, if he was encouraging the UN to get behind this and get behind it soon. Right. Carl you know, the president in, uh, in 2008 said that he would talk to foreign leaders, uh, and he wanted to he wanted to really try to come in and make peace. He got stuck in Afghanistan. It was kind of thrown, it was left over from, uh, from the previous administration, and everybody laughed a few weeks ago about using force. And I think that some of the what has happened. Uh, uh, in Syria, and what has happened in, in Iran is the fact that he threatened to use force, and, and people took him seriously. And now you have part of these turnabouts. We don't know what's going to happen. We can we can only hope that that something comes to this. Uh, it's been 30 years since we had relations with Iran, and it would be wonderful if if something did come of it, and if they they did. If they do what they said they would, would do. Bob Hines. It would be wonderful. Uh, again, uh, as Alan used the phrase earlier, trust but verify, and you know, let's make sure. Uh, the new president of, of Iran was the most moderate uh, of the candidates who were running for president. He won the job, but he ain't the boss. He is the deputy boss. The boss is the Ayatollah, the head Ayatollah Khomeini, and uh, apparently they have a good relationship, but you have to understand, we all do, that he can't go one inch farther than Khomeini wants to go, and Khomeini has never, never been very accommodating on any subject. Did he trap? And you've got the, the issue that several of the folks that are in his cabinet are 1979ers. I mean, they made their credentials by being part of what happened with the American hostages. Yeah. So you still have those folks that are in play. The other issue you've got with Iran right now is that we have pretty much shut off their shipping. I mean, one of the reasons they really, really want to talk to us right now is that it's September. And their folks are going to get hungry and they're going to get cold because we have shut off all of their exports. If they can't export, they can't get capital. If they don't get capital, they're not buying bread. So it's in their interest to make sure that they're feeding their own folks to prevent any possible uprising in Iran right now. But, but Alan Moore, when, when we look at the, the key issues, one of the key uh, headlines coming out of Romani's speech to the General Assembly, which just got over about an hour ago, was he made a quote of, 
nuclear weapons have no place in Iran's security. Again, going with trust but verify, we've never heard that type of rhetoric coming out of the head of state of Iran. Not in the same way. I mean, the, uh, Ahmadinejad used to say, we have no interest in, in, in uh, developing nuclear weapons. That's not our intention. We just He said so many other uh, lying, hateful things that it was really hard to take him at his word. With Rouhani, we don't have a history with him. We don't know. It's hard to trust him. But if, if we can cut a deal and we can verify it, then we can learn to, uh, uh, to, to trust them. Uh, Congressman Al, you know, obviously as a former member of Congress, Iran's been a sticking point in our foreign policy for a long time. Is, is the words coming out of Tehran right now something that we should be cautiously uh, optimistic about? That we could, in fact, reestablish and give cause to reestablishing uh, real ties with Tehran? I'm not sure what the difference is between being cautiously optimistic or cautiously pessimistic at this point. I think they're about the same thing. And I agree with what's been said here. He's made an effort. I think we would be dead wrong to uh, spit in his face at this point. I think we have no choice. And that the wise choice is to work with him uh, as far as we can. But... The, no, but verify, verify, verify. But Alan Martin, this is a very short window. We don't have a lot of time to tap dance around this. We've either got to engage or not. Uh, is this something that we're going to go ahead first? Into? Well, we're definitely going to engage. I mean, the later this, I, I'm not sure whether the president met with Rouhani today. We, we, the word coming out of the White House was that they would not meet. However, the Secretary of State Kerry did meet with the Foreign Minister yeah, from Iran. I, I would have hoped that they that that the two presidents would in fact meet. But if that doesn't happen, fine. I think the more substantive conversations will be later in the week. Uh, I, I saw a little little downside uh, to a meeting and some potential upside, but but uh, the important uh, the really important conversations at this stage of the discussion is is between uh, uh, Kerry and their foreign minister. But we we don't have any choice. We have to we have to take opportunities. Uh, such as they come, if they're just lying to us, well, we'll find that out in due time. But but we 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 have to. It's it's not unlike what's going on in Syria. We we're not guaranteed that we're going to have success there. Uh, we got some unreliable partners in this, but they're all we got. And Carl, so we, 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 we take, we're careful, we pursue, we hope for the best. Carl Tuna, I'm going to give you the last word because we're not going to have time for telling me a story we need, today. We need a story. But well, anyway, Politico said that we're going to meet. The uh, line on, on CNN said they're not going to be, so who knows? No, the, the, the word coming out of the White House as of 3.30 today was there will be no meeting between Romani and Obama, uh, partially because of the scheduling conflict. Uh, Obama just finished up yeah. speaking with pres former President Bill Clinton at the Clinton Global Initiative in a health care push. Uh, real quickly, around the table, Congressman, I'll start with you. Is Obama relying too heavily on, on Bill Clinton to get a message out, and is that the right player? Well, again, that's something that we'll learn later. But uh, I, I sure think it's, uh, it, it's, it's a smart move to try it, because Bill Clinton is just amazing at explaining complex things. But Bob Hines, at some point, everybody's going to say, well, why do we... Let's just re-elect Clinton. Well, no, well, I think there's where I think it is. It, the, the risk he runs is is CV not being in charge and 
letting other people tell them what to do. And, and you know, getting somebody back in and who's president, who's in charge, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think that uh, it's very smart, in my view, to talk to Clinton and have him you know, give you some help when he can't because I agree with Al. He is a smooth and a smooth operator, and he's a slippery operator, but he comes across as a pretty, as a pretty solid guy who, who's been there and done that and wants to help. He really, he really is a really great politician. We're probably short of there being a government shutdown next week. We're probably going to talk. I want to talk a little bit about this because this is something that they're spending a lot of time on this week is the Obama Bill Clinton relationship. Yeah. We'll talk about that next week. Denise? Just one of the things a leader learns is to use their assets. And if that means using somebody else and working with somebody else who is as equally as strong and as powerful as you are, then use them. Denise, the, the American people want to see the president being presidential. And we he see, is we presidential. We saw eight years of Bill Clinton. I'm not thinking any way, anything away from Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is a great, great mouthpiece for the administration. At some point, this administration has to grow up and start fighting its own fight. And at they some point, leading, they can't keep going back to the Clintons. It he's not going work. back to the Clintons. He is. No, he Justin, is. he's working with his friends. Oh, he's making sure on. that he learns every message that he has. At some point, Denise, this administration's got to grow up and learn how to get a message out. They can't keep referring to Bill Clinton going, hey, if you don't talk to me, Bill Bill will talk to you. No. And by the same token, Nixon shouldn't have allowed uh, his Secretary of State, uh, Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger shouldn't have let Kissinger be running around doing all the things <laughs> that Kissinger was doing because it might make Blink oh, Nixon look weak. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I like to associate. We'll talk about this next week. We will talk yeah. about this next week. Uh, on behalf of our, Carl, I got I got one thing to say. What there was a, a column by uh, Friedman last week where he he excoriated the Republicans. And he he has this quote in a in a in a uh, America is a country that was designed by geniuses. You so talked about that last week. No, Carl? I didn't. No, I didn't. So it could be run by um, um, by fools. By idiots. By idiots. That's so that would be the the White House and the no, and no, the Senate. No, no, no. Is that what we're talking about? No, no, no. Carl, that's not the House. That's the Will Rogers comment. He framed it that. Uh, he framed it that it was the Tea Party he was talking about. Jeez. The White House has done a horrible job of explaining Obamacare. On behalf, of, on behalf of Congressman Al, Bill, Bob Hine, Denise Kreft, uh, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell, and we're out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.